Chapter 11 William Romaine, The Ministry The biographer of William Romaine can hardly fail to observe that his life naturally divides itself into three parts. The first part extends from his birth to the beginning of his London ministry in 1746. The second ranges from 1746 to his final settlement at St. Anne's, Blackfriars, in 1764. The third comprises his ministry at Blackfriars up to the time of his death in 1795. It is this third and last part of his history that I want to deal with in this chapter. Romaine's appointment to the rectory of St. Anne's, Blackfriars, took place at a very critical period in his ministerial life. He was now about fifty years old. After preaching as a lecturer in London for eighteen years, he was still without a regular position as the minister of a parish. Every door seemed shut against him. Opposition and persecution followed him wherever he went. It seemed, in short, a question of whether or not he should give up London altogether and turn his steps elsewhere. Lord Dartmouth offered him a living in the country. Whitefield urged him to accept a large church at Philadelphia. Hot-headed friends urged him to let them build a chapel for him. It seemed far from improbable that he might fulfill the predictions of his enemies by leaving the Church of England and becoming a regular dissenter. However, Romaine had a very deep sense of the value of the Church of England. He loved her articles and prayer book with no common love. Whatever her defects in administration, and however poorly she treated her best children, he believed that the occupants of her pulpits had distinct advantages, and he steadfastly refused to leave her. He was kind and caring to those who were not churchmen, and he lived in habits of friendly communion with many of them. Even John Wesley, Armenian as he was, bears strong testimony to this. In a letter to Lady Huntington in 1763, he says, Mr. Romaine has shown a truly sympathizing spirit, and acted like a brother. Nothing, though, could persuade him to give up his own position and become a nonconformist. At this point he was greatly strengthened in his determination by the advice of that excellent clergyman, Samuel Walker of Truro. He resolved to stick by the church in which he had been ordained, and to wait patiently for some door to be opened. His patience was at length rewarded. By a strange series of providences he became minister of an important parish in the city, and he spent the last twenty-nine years of his life there in the undisturbed exercise of his ministry. The circumstances under which Romaine was appointed to his new sphere of duty were somewhat remarkable. The appointment of a minister of the United Parish of the Church of St. Andrew by the Wardrobe with St. Anne's Blackfriars, is vested alternately in the Lord Chancellor and the parishioners. The immediate predecessor of Romaine was Mr. Henley, nephew of the then Lord Chancellor Henley. He only held the position for about six years before he died of putrid fever, caught when visiting a parishioner. Upon Henley's death the appointment fell to the turn of the parishioners, and at once some of Romaine's friends, without his knowledge and consent, decided to nominate him as a candidate for the vacant position. It was soon found that at least two-thirds of the parishioners were in his favor, and although he refused to solicit votes for himself, his interest was warmly supported by Lady Huntington, Mr. Thornton, and Mr. Madan. 
there were two other candidates beside Romaine, and in accordance with the custom on such occasions, he was called on to preach a probationary sermon before the parishioners. This sermon, preached on September 30, 1764, from 2 Corinthians 5 5, is to be found among his printed works, and is a credit both to his heart and head. One part of it, in which he assigned his reason for not seeking the electors in person, deserves special notice. He said, Some people have insinuated that it was from pride that I would not go about the parish from house to house asking for votes, but truly it was from another motive. I couldn't see how this could promote the glory of God. How can it be for the honor of Jesus that His ministers, who have renounced fame, riches, and ease, should be most anxious and earnest in the pursuit of those very things that they have renounced? Surely this would be getting into a worldly spirit, as much as the spirit of a politician seeking votes. As this method of seeking votes cannot be for Jesus' sake, so neither is it for our honor. It is far beneath our function, nor is it for your profit. What good is it to your souls? What compliment is it to your understanding? And what advantage is it to you in any way to be directed and applied to by every person with whom you have any connection or on whom you have any dependence? Is not this depriving you of your freedom of your choice? Determined by these motives, when my friends of their own accord put me up as a candidate, to whom I have to this hour made no request, directly or indirectly, I left you to yourselves. If you choose me, I desire to be your servant for Jesus' sake, and if you do not, may the will of the Lord be done. It deserves notice that this sermon did the preacher's cause no harm, but rather worked in his favor. It was well received by the parishioners, and was published at their request. Notwithstanding the strong support Romain received, his appointment was not secured without great difficulty and opposition. A hotly contested election, a poll, a scrutiny, and an appeal to the Court of Chancery interposed between the first movement of his friends and the final accomplishment of their wishes. At length, after eighteen months' delay, all obstacles were overcome, a decree was given in his favor by Lord Henley, and he was instituted and inducted as rector of St. Anne's Blackfriars in February 1766. No one, perhaps, throughout this anxious period of suspense, worked more earnestly in his behalf than Lady Huntingdon. She saw clearly the immense importance of such a champion of Christ's gospel being settled in a prominent position in London, and she left no stone unturned to secure his success. Help was also raised by an unexpected source. A tavern owner in the parish is said to have been one of his most active supporters. At first, no one could understand the reason. When it was all over, though, Romain called on him to thank him. The tavern owner replied, Indeed, sir, I'm more indebted to you than you to me, for you've made my wife, who was one of the worst, the best woman in the world. Romain entered on his new position with a very deep sense of his own insufficiency. He who intended him to be a wise master builder taught him to lay a sound foundation of self-abasement and humility. His own letters on the occasion of his election provide a very expressive picture of his feelings. In one letter he said, My friends are rejoicing all around me, 
and are wishing me a joy that I cannot take. It's my master's will, and I submit. He knows best what is for his own glory and his people's good, and I am certain he makes no mistakes on either of these points. But my head hangs down upon the occasion because of the greatest apprehension that I ever had of the care of souls. I am frightened to think of watching over two or three thousand, when it's work enough to watch over one. The plague of my own heart almost wearies me to death. What can I do with so vast a number? In a letter to Lady Huntington on the same date, he wrote, Now, when I was setting up my rest, and had begun to say unto my soul, Soul, take your ease, I am called into a public station, and to the sharpest engagement, just as I had got into winter quarters. I can see nothing before me, so long as breath is in my body, but war, and that with unreasonable men, a divided parish, an angry clergy, and a wicked world, all to be resisted and overcome. Besides all these, a sworn enemy, subtle and cruel, with whom I can make no peace, no, not a moment's time, night and day, with all his children and his host, is aiming at my destruction. When I take counsel of the flesh, I begin to faint, but when I go to the sanctuary, I see my good cause, and my almighty master and true friend, and then he makes my courage revive. Although I am in no way fit for the work, yet he called me to it, and on him I depend for strength to do it and for success to crown it. I utterly despair of doing anything as of myself, and therefore the more I have to do, the more I will be forced to live by faith on him. In this view, I hope to get a great reward by my living. I will want Jesus more and will get closer to him. Whatever anticipations of trouble Romain may have formed in his mind, he met with comparatively little at Blackfriars. In fact, his twenty-nine years of ministry there was a season of quietness compared to his earlier days. Like every faithful clergyman who preaches the gospel, he undoubtedly had enemies and opponents, but they could do little to disturb him. The result was that the latter years of his life, although not less useful than the former, were certainly less eventful. Like the river that at first rushes forcefully down the mountainside, but glides silently along when it reaches the plains and becomes navigable, so remains ministry from the time of his settlement at Blackfriars, although it made less noise, was probably more beneficial to the Church of Christ. He necessarily became less of an itinerant and missionary preacher. The claims of his own parish and pulpit required him to stay much at home, and absorbed much of his time and attention. But his usefulness, no matter what some impulsive judges might think, was not only not diminished, but was probably much increased. The plain truth is that as rector of a London parish, Romain became a rallying point for all in London who loved evangelical truth in the Church of England. Man after man, and family after family, gathered around his pulpit until his congregation became the nucleus of a vast amount of good in the city. His constant, unflinching declaration of Christ's whole truth produced a powerful impression on people's minds without them even realizing it, and made them understand what a true clergyman of the Church of England should be. His undeniable learning made him an adversary whom few cared to fight with, and gave a weight to these assertions that they did not always possess 
when they came from the lips of half-educated men. His position gave him distinct advantages. Almost within sight of both St. Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey, he held a post from which he was always ready to go forth and do battle, either with tongue or pen. If error arose rampant, he was prepared to attack it immediately. If truth was assaulted, he was equally prepared to rush out and defend it. In short, the good that he did as rector of Blackfriars, though less showy, was probably more solid and permanent than the good that he did all the rest of his life. To attempt to chronicle all the events of his life during his twenty-nine years at Blackfriars would be of little use, even if we possessed materials for doing so. From the very beginning of his duty he took great effort to have the services of his church conducted with strict reverence and good order. Like many other clergymen, he did not rest until he had put the framework of his church in good repair, had built a good parsonage, and made the religious schools thoroughly efficient. Once these things had been accomplished, he gave himself entirely to the direct work of his office. He was never idle, and he seldom passed a silent Sabbath. Preaching, visiting, writing for the printing press, or corresponding with the many people who asked his advice, occupied nearly all his time to his life's end. He was not, perhaps, what would be called nowadays a sociable man. Cadogan says, He was naturally close and reserved, irritable to a certain degree, short and quick in his replies, and frequently mistaken as being rude and pessimistic, where he meant nothing of the kind. If he had paid more attention than he did to the various distresses of soul and body that were brought before him, he would have had no time left for reading, meditation, and prayer, and basically for what every man must attend to in private who would be useful in public. It was not uncommon for him to tell those who came to him with cases of conscience and questions of spiritual concern that he said all he had to say in the pulpit. Thus people might be hurt for the moment by such a dismissal, but they only had to attend his preaching, and they soon found that their difficulties had impressed him as well as themselves, that they had been submitted to God, and that they had been the subject of his serious and affectionate consideration. These observations of Cadogan's deserve special attention. Sadly, Romain is not the only minister whose reputation has suffered from shameful misrepresentation and misconstruction. Few men, unfortunately, are so likely to be unfairly judged as ministers who fill prominent positions and are noted for their gifts and graces. Even Christians are too ready to set them down as haughty, proud, cold, distant, reserved, and unsocial, without any just reason for doing so. The immense demands continually made on the time and strength, the many private difficulties they frequently have to contend with, and the absolute necessity they are under of much daily reading, meditation, and communion with God, are all things too often entirely forgotten by the people. Many indeed are the wounds of feeling that ministers have to endure from the unkind remarks of unreasonable friends. The cup that Romaine had to drink is a cup that many clergymen have to drink in the present day. The few anecdotes preserved about William Romaine are all somewhat characteristic of the man as Cadogan describes him. They all give the idea of one who is short and abrupt to an extreme in his communications, so much so, in fact, that we can quite understand fault-finding people being offended by him. 
Yet the anecdotes always tend to prove that he was a man of uncommon graces, gifts, and good sense. One evening he was invited to a friend's house, and after tea the lady of the house asked him to play cards, to which he made no objection. The cards were brought out, and when all were ready to begin playing, Romaine said, Let us ask the blessing of God. Ask the blessing of God? said the lady in great surprise. I never heard of such a thing before a game of cards. Romaine then asked, Should we engage in anything on which we cannot ask God's blessing? This reproof put an end to playing cards. On another occasion he was addressed by a lady who expressed the great pleasure she had enjoyed under his preaching. She added that she could comply with his requirements with the exception of one thing. And what is that? asked Romaine. Cards, sir, was the reply. You think you could not be happy without them? No, sir, I know I could not. Then, madam, he said, cards are your God, and they must save you. It is recorded that this direct remark led to serious reflections, and finally to the abandonment of card playing. When the unhappy Dr. William Dodd was sentenced to death for forgery, Romaine, among others, felt a deep and somber interest about him. There was once a time when he and Dodd had been close friends because of their common zeal for the promotion of Hebrew learning. When, however, poor Dodd began to love the world better than Christ, the close friendship gradually ceased, and Dodd actually told Romaine that he hoped he would not acknowledge him if they met in public. Before his execution, Romaine visited him in Newgate Prison at Dodd's specific request, and many were anxious to know what he thought of the prisoner's spiritual state. The only answer that could be extracted from him, though, was this, I hope he may be a real penitent, but there's a big difference between saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and really feeling it. As short and abrupt as the clergyman of Blackfriars evidently was in his demeanour, he was very sensible of his own deficiencies, and was very willing to confess himself in the wrong. On one occasion a dissenting minister, who often attended his lectures, called on him to complain about some harsh reflections that he thought Romaine had made about dissenters. Having made his complaint, Romaine replied, I do not want to have anything to say to you, sir. If you will hear me, said the dissenting minister, I will tell you my name and profession. I am a Protestant dissenting minister. Sir, said Romaine, I neither wish to know your name nor your profession. Upon this the unfortunate nonconformist bowed and walked away. Not long after this, Romaine, to the great surprise of his hearer and reprover, returned the visit, and after the usual salutation said, Well, sir, I am not come to renounce my principles, I have not changed my beliefs, and I will not give up my preference for the Church of England. However, I have come as a Christian to apologize. I think my behavior to you, sir, the other day was not right, nor was what it should have been. They then shook hands and parted good friends. Romaine's last illness found him still happy in his work and still doing his father's business. He lived to the age of eighty-one and enjoyed the full use of his faculties to the very end. During the last ten years of his life he seems to have become greatly mellowed and softened, and to have been a beautiful example of that lovely sight, a godly old man, a grey head found in the way of righteousness, 
Proverbs 16.31 He went gradually down the valley toward the river with all the golden richness of a setting sun in summer. There appeared to be little except heaven in his sermons or in his life, and, like dying Richard Baxter, he spoke of his future home with great familiarity, like one who had already seen it. It was well remarked by some of his friends in these last days of his ministry that he was a true diamond, naturally rough and pointed, but the more he was broken by years, the more he appeared to shine. There was often a light upon his countenance, especially when he preached, that looked like the dawn, or a faint appearance of glory. If anyone asked him how he was doing, his general answer was, As well as I can be, out of heaven. He made this reply shortly before his death to a friend of a different denomination, and then added, There's only one central point in which we must all meet, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This was the object that he always kept in sight, the wonderful God-man whom, according to his own words, he had taken for body and for soul, for time and for eternity, for present and everlasting all. Romaine's simple and regular habits of life, no doubt, had much to say to his length of days and vigorous old age. There are unquestionably ministers who seem independent of regular food and hours, and whose iron constitutions appear to stand any strain, but most are not like this. Cadogan says about Romaine, His hour of breakfast was six in the morning, of dinner half-past one in the afternoon, and of supper seven in the evening. His family was assembled to prayer at nine o'clock in the morning, and at the same hour at night. His Hebrew Psalter was his constant companion at breakfast, and he often said how much his first meal was sanctified by the word of God and prayer. From ten o'clock to one he was generally employed in visiting the sick and friends. He retired to his study after dinner, and sometimes walked again after supper, in summer. After evening service in his family, he retired again to his study and went to bed at ten. He never deviated from this mode of living, except when he was a guest in the house of friends, and then he had breakfast at seven, lunch at two, and supper at eight. His adherence to rules in this respect was never more apparent than in a circumstance that happened during the last years of his life. He was invited by an eminent dignitary of the church to dine with him at five o'clock. He felt respect for the one who had invited him, and wanted to show it. Instead, therefore, of sending a written apology, he waited upon him himself, thanked him for the invitation, and excused himself by pleading his long habits of early hours, his old age, and his often infirmities. Romaine's deathbed was a beautiful illustration of the truth of what John Wesley said about the Methodists. Our people die well. The world may find fault with our opinions, but the world cannot deny that our people die well. This was eminently the case with Romaine. His fatal illness attacked him on Saturday, June the 6th, 1795, and put an end to his life on July 26. The last sermon that he preached was on the preceding Thursday evening at St. Dunstan's. It was an exposition of John 18, and he remarked to his assistant that he must proceed through the text as quickly as he could, or he would not get through the book of John before the lectures ended for the summer. 
His concluding sermon at Blackfriars was on the preceding Tuesday morning, from Psalm 103, 13. Like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. These dates are worthy of special notice. This fine old servant of Christ, at the age of eighty-one, was evidently preaching at least three days in every week. From the moment he was seized with this illness, he considered it to be his last. Although he had occasional symptoms of recovery during the seven weeks that his illness continued, he never entered the pulpit again. He spoke of himself as a dying man, but always as one who had peace in believing. On the morning of his seizure, he came down to breakfast as usual, in the house at Balham Hill where he was staying, and he presided in family devotions. It was observed that he prayed most earnestly to God that he would fit them for and support them in their trials that day which might be many. He returned the same day to his own house in London, and conversed most profitably and comfortably along the way about the approach of death and the near prospect of eternity. He said, How animating is the view that I have now of death, and the hope laid up for me in heaven, full of glory and immortality. On arriving at home, his last illness struck him. William Romaine continued at his own house in London under medical advice for three weeks, following all of his physician's instructions, but he said, You're taking much effort to prop up this feeble body. His Hebrew Psalter lay close by him, and he frequently read a verse or two out of it, not being able to do more. Because of the nature of his illness, he could only speak a little. Being once asked if he would see some of his friends, he replied that he needed no better company than he enjoyed. Cadogan, Romaine's biographer, provides more details of Romaine's last few weeks. On the 26th of June, he left town and went to a friend's house at Tottenham for two weeks, where he was so much better that he was able to walk about the garden. Upon his return to town, he told his ministerial assistant that he had laid long in the arms of death, and if recovering, it was very slowly. But, he said, this is but a poor dying life at best. However, I am in his hands who will do the best for me, I am sure of that. I have lived to experience all I have spoken and all I have written, and I bless God for it. To another friend, he said, I have the peace of God in my conscience and the love of God in my heart, and that, you know, is sound experience. I knew before that the doctrines I preached were truths, but now I experience them to be blessings. Thanking another friend for a visit, he told him that he had come to see a saved sinner. He often affirmed that this should be his dying breath. He desired to die with the language of the publican in his mouth. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He continued in London for a few days in this blessed frame of mind, and then returned on July 13 to the house of his friend Mr. Whitridge at Bayham Hill, where he had been the day that he was first taken ill. From this date his strength rapidly declined, but his faith and patience never failed him. He was often saying, How good is God! What comforts He gives me! What a prospect I see before me of glory and immortality! He is my God in life, in death, and throughout eternity. On the twenty-third of July, as he sat at breakfast, he said, It's now nearly sixty years since God opened my mouth to publish the everlasting sufficiency and eternal glory of the salvation in Christ Jesus. 
and it has now pleased him to shut my mouth, so that my heart might feel and experience what my mouth has so often spoken. On the twenty-fourth of July, after being helped downstairs for the last time, he said, Oh, how good God is! With what a night he has favored me! Then he requested that prayer without ceasing might be made for him, so that his faith and patience would not fail. He spoke with great kindness and affection to his wife. Thanking her for all her care of him, he said, Come, my love, that I may bless you. The Lord be with you, a covenant God forever, to save and bless you. Mrs. Whitridge, in whose house he was dying, on seeing and hearing him bless his wife, said, Have you not a blessing for me, sir? Yes, he replied, I pray God to bless you. And so he said to everyone who came to him. On Saturday, July 25, he was not able to get downstairs, but lay upon a couch all day in great weakness of body, but strong in faith, giving glory to God, and with the power of Christ resting on him. Toward the end of the day, some thought they heard him say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. About an hour before his death, Mr. Whitridge, his host and friend, said, I hope, my dear sir, you now find the salvation of Jesus Christ precious, dear, and valuable to you. His answer was, He is a precious Saviour to me now. These were the last words he spoke to man. He was heard to say to the Lord, Holy, 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 blessed Jesus, to you be endless praise. About midnight, as the Sabbath began, he breathed his last, and he entered that eternal rest that remains for the people of God. Well says the Scriptures, Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Psalm 37, 37. Remain's friends and relations had fully intended to give him a private funeral, but this proved impossible. The many hearers of a minister who had preached the gospel in London for forty-five years could not be prevented from showing their respect and affection by following him to the grave. Dozens of people looked up to him as their spiritual father. Hundreds venerated his character and consistency, even though they didn't fully embrace the gospel he had preached. The consequence was that his funeral, despite all wishes and intentions, was a particularly public one. Fifty coaches followed the hearse from Clapham Common, besides many people on foot. By the time the procession reached the church in St. George's Fields, the multitude collected was very great indeed. But silence, solemnity, and decorum prevailed. At the foot of Blackfriars Bridge, the city marshals were waiting with their men in black silk scarfs and hatbands, and rode before the hearse to the entrance of the church. They had been ordered out by the Lord Mayor as his token of respect for the memory of a man whose character had stood so high in the city of London. Thus the venerable rector of Blackfriars went to his eternal home on August 3, 1795, amid every outward mark of respect and affection. At the end of his long forty-five years of ministry, no one lifted up his tongue against him. The winds and waves of persecution had at last ceased. He had borne and overcome all opposition, and he died honored and lamented. So true is that word of Scripture, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. William Remain was once married, although rather later in life than many ministers. 
His wife was a Miss Trice, and she survived him. He had children, of whom one son died at Trincomalee in 1782 to his great sorrow. Another son was with him in his last illness, of whom he spoke with great affection, expressing his hope of him as a son in the faith as well as a son in the flesh. Of his other children I can find no account. Most of Romaine's literary works are so well known that I don't need to trouble my readers or listeners with any account of them. His largest work, The Life, Walk, and Triumph of Faith, has been often reprinted and holds a respectable position among English evangelical classics. His Twelve Sermons on the Law and the Gospel have also been republished more than once, and in my judgment deservedly so. I regard it as the best and most valuable work he ever sent to the printing press. His exploratory sermons on Psalm 107 and on Solomon's Song are not as well known as they should be. The latter especially throws more light on a most difficult book of Scripture than many works of much higher pretensions. His single sermons are, of course, very little known, but no one who wants to get a proper idea of the kind of preacher Romain was should neglect to read them. For simplicity, strength, point, and forcibleness, for short, true, powerful sentences, they will bear a favorable comparison with almost any evangelical sermons of the eighteenth century. Many of his letters in his published correspondence are very valuable. Like John Newton, he wrote in days when the modern machinery of societies, committee meetings, Exeter Hall gatherings, etc., were totally unknown, and when people had more time to write long letters than they have now. Those who like reading Newton's Cardiphonia and Omicron would find Romaine's correspondence well worth reading. Christ and the Bible are the two golden threads that seem to run through all his letters. One of the most useful publications that Romaine ever sent forth is one that is hardly known at all. I may be wrong, but my firm belief is that my estimate of its usefulness will be found correct at the last day. The publication I refer to is called An Earnest Invitation to the Friends of the Established Church to Join with Several of Their Brethren, Clergy, and Laity in London in Setting Apart an Hour of Every Week for Prayer and Supplication During the Present Troublesome Times. There is strong reason to believe that this little publication was made eminently useful when it first appeared, and has led to an amazing succession of supplications, intercessions, and prayers down to the present day. Beyond all doubt, it was a move in the right direction. It sent men to Him who alone has all hearts in His hands, and who alone can revive His church in dead times. Who can tell? but that much of the Spirit's work in the last sixty years will be found at last to have been the answer to Romaine's prayers. One fact, though, deserves to be especially remembered. When Romaine first sent forth this invitation in 1757, he only knew about a dozen clergymen in all of England who were willing to unite with him and join his proposal of prayer. But by the time he died in 1795, he believed that the number of like-minded men in the established church had grown to at least three hundred. That fact alone speaks for itself. I will leave the fourth spiritual hero of the eighteenth century here, asking my listeners to give his name the honor that it deserves. 
He did not have all the popular gifts of some of his contemporaries. He did not possess all the pleasant and attractive characteristics of many in his day. But considering him in his entirety, he was a great man and a mighty instrument in God's hand for good. He stood in a most prominent position in London for forty five years, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, and never flinching for a day. He stood alone, with almost no backers, supporters, or fellow laborers. He stood in the same place, constantly preaching to the same hearers, and not able, like Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, and other itinerant brethren, to preach old sermons. He stood there witnessing to truths that were most unpopular, bringing down upon him opposition, persecution, and scorn. He stood in a most public post and was continually watched, observed, and noticed by unfriendly eyes that were ready to detect faults in a moment if he committed them. Yet during all these forty-five years he maintained a blameless character and firmly upheld his first principles to the end. He died like a good soldier at his post, full of days and honor. The man of whom these things can be said must have been no common man. It is place and position that specifically prove what we are. In England in the eighteenth century there were not four spiritual champions greater and more honorable than William Romaine.